Good morning. Good morning. Okay. Gosh, is, is it daylight savings or something? We're continuing our series on Colossians. Uh, we're moving into the end of chapter 1, starting with verse 24 and going into uh, five verses into chapter 2. A um, couple things to keep in mind about this book, about this letter, actually. Sometimes we forget their letters. Um, we memorize the books of the Bible when we're young, and then uh, these are uh, were correspondences from an expert and a chosen man of God to people who needed his help. Now, the folks at Colossae, um, Paul had never met them. He was writing this letter to somebody he hadn't visited, he hadn't dealt with personally, he hadn't met them face-to-face. And, um, but he had gotten word that they were doing reasonably well, but that they needed additional teaching to grow in the faith. And one of the things they needed help with was the fact that false teachings had sprung up. It's interesting to me that you only have to get a couple of years into the uh, life of the church that Jesus started when he said he was going to build it on uh, the rock of Peter. He built his church, and like within 30 years they were going wrong. And it makes you understand a little better about how, what it is we have to deal with 2,000 years later. If you uh, think how many 30-year spans are in that, um, multiply that by uh, whatever the number. That, oh, gosh, I painted myself into a corner. That's a math problem, <laughs> whatever it comes to. But it's a lot. It's a big number. And so we start finding that um, the, uh, the idea of dealing with um, error is still the same. Uh, the errors are not always the same, but the idea of dealing with error is the same. And, of course, the that basic thing that you have to do, as Paul is reminding the folks at Colossae, is you have to go back to the source. You have to go back to where um, all of this started uh, with uh, the Messiah. Um, the folks at Colossae were not even... Um, a lot of the churches that he wrote to had a large Jewish contingent. This one seems not to. doesn't seem like it had a lot of Jewish people there. And the Jewish people who were there... Um, had taken on um, uh, a lot of the practices of the, fa- of the neighborhoods around them, of the people around them. This is a process, there's a, there's a couple of, I usually try to avoid, if I can, um, uh, theological words, but, but there's a couple it probably doesn't hurt to know, and you hear this a lot is with uh, theologians, and if you start reading books on where the church is going, one of these words you're going to hear is called acculturation. I think I've mentioned that before, right? Have we heard that before? Which means that the church has become so much like the culture that it doesn't look especially Christian. And it was the problem here also that that, that didn't look like especially Jewish. In fact, there were some scholars who think that one of the the main Jewish leaders there was also the leader of a pagan cult that was uh, also centered on the area and was just splitting her time between the, um, uh, the Jewish practices and the practices of the people around them. Um, obviously not the, a, a good situation. And when you have somebody in there um, that begins to sound reasonable, that if it's somebody who's popular, somebody who people follow, you know what it's like. When there are certain people that people respect, and when they start to talk in a certain way or they start to teach in a certain way, people line up behind them. And they start to follow them like a bunch of ducklings. And before you know it, they're pretty far, they're pretty far lost. Um, one of the things that I, um, uh, the illustrations that I like is when Jesus uh, was, refers to us as sheep. Um, we don't, you know, let's, let's face it, the, most of us don't know much about sheep, right? I, I mean, I, when I drive down the road, I know it's a sheep and not a cow. But aside from that, my, 
my knowledge of sheep is, that's, that's about it. Um, sheep are stupid. Um, sheep are very stupid. Being called a sheep was not just some sort of benign comparison that Jesus was doing. He was making a very definite value statement about what kind of people we were. Um, I used to say this about in the circus, but now, of course, the circus is gone, right? There is no circus anymore. The Ringling Brothers Circus is gone. But anyway, if you can look at old videos there, you will never see the great Santini and his trained sheep act. There, was, there were no sheep doing anything in the circus, and they, they really are um, sort of hopeless. And um, I was reading one time, there was a book about uh, a shepherd looks at the 23rd Psalm. Um, thinking about all of the imagery of the sheep and the shepherd and so forth and how they actually behave, what they actually do in the course of the year, and uh, how it then applies to us as the sheep of his shepherd, uh, yeah, the sheep of his fold. And it was interesting to me, um, I never forgot this, of how sheep get lost. Um, they eat themselves lost. Um, I can relate to this. This, this is how I go from Burger King to Five Guys on my way home. <laughs> so I, I haven't had enough beef, so I'm lost. I, you know, I, they bend down, and they eat, and they eat, and they keep on eating, and they look up, and they don't know where they are. They've gone miles. I guess there's a little swath of short grass. They don't even know to follow it back home. Um, they eat themselves lost, that they get so involved. It's, it's interesting because it, also, it actually sort of ties in with one of the parables that Jesus told about the parable of the, um, um, of the sower. Um, they just get so caught up in the things of the... They're like the, um, the thorny Christians. You know, the, some people, they, they plant the seeds and the thorns grow up. The thorns are the cares of this world which end up dominating your thoughts. They end up dominating your life they simply become your Lord. Um, you f- organize your life around what the, the culture and what your job and what your career requires. Um, seems like an important thing, seems like a reasonable thing. But of course it skips God. It doesn't end run around Jesus. And we start trying to do these things ourselves. And we know what happens when that happens and what happens is we get lost. And so in Colossae, you've got some people who are in danger of getting lost. That the things that they were hearing, the things that they were doing, the things by perhaps not having a person like Paul come by every once in a while, meant that they were free to go whatever seemed most reasonable to them. And we read in the Bible oftentimes, one of the things that you, when you were reading in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament you would read this, you knew that trouble was coming when the Scripture said, and in those days the people did what seemed right in their own eyes. And then you knew from at that point things were really going to go far afield and that somebody was going to have to be raised up by God in order to bring them back where they needed to be. This was the danger. This was the danger here. Now, last week, um, when Bill was talking about Colossians, his part of Colossians, um, I don't, there's not very much that's accidental with Bill, so I assume he put this word in there on purpose. And that word was Maturity. Right? Was that on purpose, Bill? Yes, I dare say. And, um, of course, we had just finished up a, uh, a series on Christian maturity of how you get past what Paul would call the, um, the mother's milk Christians, um, which obviously uh, uh, mother's milk Christians need mother's milk instruction. Very simple, very elementary, very loving, 
modeled by people who are more mature so that we all are growing in the faith, moving in the direction that we're supposed to go in. Christian maturity comes into play with Colossians. When, when Paul talks to somebody, when Paul writes to somebody, he is always interested in their progress, that they move from point A to point B to point C, and that there is this element of progress and movement that they're looking for towards a particular level, towards a particular goal. Now, Paul, of course, is a guy who probably knows, I would say, as much about what God wants him to know as anybody I can think of. Um, when I think of somebody who God has really spoken to, has really revealed everything to, what is the most that a human being can probably ascertain and retain and live out with, uh, when it comes to God? It would be Paul. And as he tries talking to his, um, his people and trying to um, illustrate what there is, is they're supposed to do, he is trying to nudge them towards a kind of maturity that if you, know, if you know the Lord so well, if your relationship with God is so strong, if your relationship with Christ is so strong, if he indwells you, if you are one, as uh, Jesus prayed in the book of John, that we would be one with him and with, with, uh, with God, the Father, that uh, we would be able to stand firm because we are getting our instructions from God. It's harder to slip. It's harder to go astray if you are in touch with God and he is the one who is speaking to you. It's one thing if you, if you find an author, if you find a preacher, if you find an instructor, if you find um, a, a program that seems to really work for you, it is a lot easier to go astray if you lower your standards and look at a, a human being, no matter how good it is. I can remember um, there was a time when I flipped over um, an author named um, A.W. Tozer. Anybody know Tozer? He's, he's a good... He's a good guy. And I remember, I guess, um, I was talking to uh, somebody one time, and he was, I was going on about, about Tozer. And I think I might have gone on a little too long about Tozer. And he started to worry that I might have taken my eye off God and started looking at this guy and following him a little bit too much. He had a lot to say. But if it wasn't pointing me towards the Father... Either he was failing in, in wording this properly, or I was failing by forgetting just where all of this instruction comes from and what his writing was intended to produce. So we take our eyes off of the human being. We deal with each other. We edify each other. We admonish each other. We teach each other. We love each other. We uphold each other. But we don't follow each other. And we remember that in, the, in all of this, we keep our eye on God the Father. That's Christian maturity. And the more we have a deeper relationship with, with Jesus... Uh, the less likely it is that when something false comes along, that it's going to have any appeal to us. It is as we know, when we take our eye off of God, is when we start to go wrong. We start to eat ourselves lost. Christian maturity, then, is um, the understanding and the acceptance, the embrace, the celebration, and the practice of a life centered on God. As we do that, as we begin, to, as we deepen our relationship with him, we understand him better, we, under, we understand better um, what he is trying to tell us. We want his way above our way, no matter what it might feel like, no matter what kind of suffering it might produce, no matter what kind of discipline it requires. Um, our love for him and our understanding for him and our knowledge of him is such that to take your eye off of him and to try another approach is unthinkable. 
We rely upon the holy and we rely upon the supernatural. Our lives become supernaturally oriented. And as we learn more about how it is that uh, what God is calling us to, our lives become more supernaturally based. That we rely upon the supernatural to deal with everything. And that we see everything through a godly prism. We see creation through a godly perspective. Okay. Colossians 1.24 Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. Did you hear that in there? What is lacking in Christ's afflictions. And when we read this, the implication is that Jesus' work was incomplete, that Jesus' work leaves us wanting something. There's more to do than Jesus accomplished when he went to the cross. That's not what this means. Uh, the people who are reading this in Colossae probably would understand it a little better than we understand it. In the original Greek, it's a little harder to, uh, to make this mistake. But it does imply that, basically, not imply, it does say that Jesus' work goes on. While he went to the cross, when he died on the cross, and the work of salvation was finished, in fact, he even said it is finished, the work still goes on. There is something for us to do. There is a progress that the kingdom of God is going to be making. God has a plan that is unfolding. There is more to do. And so that's the part that he's talking about with regard to what's lacking, that there is still um, additional work for us to, to carry out. And one of the things that helps us to remember here in 2017 is that Jesus' work is ongoing, and we're right in the thick of it. We have agreed to depart from other ways of doing things and said we are going to be a part of Jesus' work and of Jesus' life from now on. We have given ourselves over. We have surrendered. We hold nothing back. Unconditional surrender to the Lord who is now our new Lord, who we listen to in every regard. This is where we're going. And one of the things that also that helps us to understand uh, that the work of, uh, you know, of Jesus goes on, remember what Jesus said to Paul, or Saul actually, when he met Saul on the road to Damascus. He said, Saul... Why are you persecuting me? It was still possible to persecute Jesus, who had, all, who had gone to heaven. So from the point of view of what Jesus is enduring for the sake of the creation that he made and the people that he's calling to himself, he's still suffering. He is still aware of being persecuted. Uh, he's telling Paul this. And so we understand also more about the work is continuing to go on. We're in the thick of it. There are people who hate Jesus who are attacking him, and it uh, obviously grieves Jesus. And the suffering is not over for us. Um, Paul tells us, you know, count it all joy when you suffer for Jesus' sake, when you suffer all kinds of persecutions for Jesus' sake. When you suffer for Jesus' sake, it means you've struck a nerve. That what you are doing is bearing fruit. That what you are doing is having the desired effect. That those who do not know, those who have turned their back on God, those who are denying God, are, are responding to the kinds of truth that they are hearing. Um, the truth for people who believe a lie is a painful thing. Suffering actually is a prerequisite for being glorified with Jesus in the last day. 
Continuing with Colossians, Paul talking again, I have become its servant by the commission that God gave me to present to you the word of God in his fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. Disclosed to the Lord's people in Christ and by Christ. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, the mystery which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. A couple of my favorite words are in there. Mystery and power. Christ in you eternally from now on, work that is continuing to go on, the work that Jesus continues with in each of our lives and in each of the lives of the people we love for his purpose uh, to some uh, magnificent, incredible, glorious end that we can hardly imagine. And that the fact of the matter is for most of us, uh, knowing, knowing the scripture as we do, when we wake up in the morning... Do we wonder if today is going to be the day of the rapture? Or do we wonder if what we're going to do today is going to make our Thursday any easier? Because we all have our plans. We're all caught up in all the things. I mean, it's not, um, at work, I'm already planning for what's going to happen in November. And I assume that there are people in other jobs besides mine that are planning what's going to happen in 2025. And we go through all of our lives with all of these things in mind and our focus comes back down to earth from what it is that we are, we are called to do. The power, though, to do this is not in our willpower. It's not in a program by Deepak Chopra. I probably said his name wrong, which is probably okay. And um, it's, it's not in some human reasoning. It is supernatural. When we give ourselves to the Lord and we let him do what he wants to do within us by his power in your human heart. Um, One of the things that Paul is very interested in that we understand is that we are in the middle of an age that was ushered in by Christ that is different from what the world was like, what the age was like, before Christ came. The incarnation is a pivotal time of human history that is becoming increasingly and increasingly um, denied. Have you noticed now, uh, for example, when you listen to people, um, sort of archaeologists, and they're talking about a discovery that was made in 24 B.C.? Have you noticed a lot of them don't say B.C. anymore? What do they say? B.C.E. Before the Common Era. Which means that an era that is not before Christ... um, or A.D., which is um, the year of our Lord, but that it's just a commonly accepted Lord, uh, numbering system for the, for the uh, years, and it's too late to change it now. So we just accept it, we go on with it, it has nothing to do with God, and one step at a time, one bit of grass at a time for the sheep, we're, the, uh, we're getting away from, from uh, Jesus. Um, he is still at work here, and we try to understand something That is to say that we are here temporarily. We understand we have a span of years, but we're here temporarily. What we are going through, where we live, is here temporarily. 
um, where we are is going to pass away. It is going to be rolled up like a scroll. And there's going to be this final day of glory, which oftentimes we think, probably most of the time we think, is some future time, sometime, sometime. Um, which oftentimes, in my case, I don't know if this is like this from you, I suspect that it probably is, because there is no temptation that isn't common to man, um, that also t- gets us to think that whatever I'm doing wrong, I've got time to make it right. Because this is not going to happen for another 500 years, and I've got, the, you know, I've got plenty of time. We don't, we don't know that. And it changes our perspective when we think of ourselves as being completely within and subject to God's plan, which is going to unfold the way he wants it to, and he hasn't told anyone, not even the Son, and certainly not Paul. Now, to the Colossians and the other people at that time uh, who lived and still knew people who saw Jesus in the flesh um, and remembered what it was like before Jesus came, this is a little different for them when they hear this because they can still remember when Jesus was being predicted when Jesus was being foretold. And they were trying to imagine a world of when it entered into this new epoch after Jesus came and did whatever the Messiah was going to do. A lot of people still didn't understand that very well. That when he came and changed all of these things, the world was going to enter a new era where the rules were going to be different, the fulfillment of the rules that had gone before. I shouldn't say it. That's one of those tricky things. As Jesus told us, the law does not pass away but the law is fulfilled in him. Sort of a concept we have to grab onto as we try to obey the law, but obviously understand the law is not going to save us, that we don't want to be dominated by it. We are headed somewhere. The whole culture, all of creation, which is groaning as a woman in childbirth, is heading somewhere. And we are in the middle of it, of the one who is taking it where it's going to go and fulfilling it at a particular time. There is a purpose to it all. It's not luck. It's not random events. The future just doesn't happen to us. God knows what the future is now. He knows where we're going. He knows what we're going to be dealing with tomorrow. The future is foreknown and foreordained by the um, Most High God. Now, I... um, I have an illustration that I think of. Illustrations are always imperfect. Always, 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 because they are human, they're meant to illustrate, they're meant as, a tr- as an attempt. And so if this works for you, fine. If not, pretend you didn't hear it, just put it aside. There will be another illustration at some point that will work for you. The idea of living here temporarily, the idea that this is something we're not supposed to hold on to, that we're not supposed to embrace, that we're not supposed to covet, is a tricky one for us. This world means a lot to us. The world itself, a beautiful sunrise, uh, the, the things that have happened in our lives that are, that are wonderful and beautiful, the, the friendships that we have, um, to, to be able to experience love, to be able to experience life, all these are wonderful things, and they make the world something to latch onto and to embrace. But we are here temporarily, and it's sometimes hard to think of it that way. Um, in my house, this is the illustration, in my house... Always, as I'm in my house and looking around my house and dealing with things and washing the dishes and whatever else it is I'm doing, I am aware all the time that someday I'm going to have to pack this stuff up. Someday i got to put everything out my eye sees is going to have to go in a box. And it depresses me 
because I've packed a number of times in my life, as so have you. It is no fun, and I am not looking forward to do it again. But I understand this is not permanent. This is not my home. I'm going to have to pack everything up. We're going to have to decide what we're going to sell, what we're going to give away. We're going to sell, you know, for pennies on the dollar, or we'll give it to our children, and they'll sell it for pennies on the dollar. And we will um, uh, do whatever we can to make it so that we don't have to move quite as many things. And then we're going to have to spruce the house up. Uh, the nail pops in the ceiling and uh, whatever else it is that's going on. We can't sell a house that looks like this. Uh, we've got to do something to the yard because we have not touched the yard in 18 years. <laughs> I don't own a lawnmower, which is one of my gr- things that I, that's something I'm proud of. I don't own a lawnmower. Um, but all this has to go through because this house doesn't belong to me. Some stranger's going to live here someday, whatever the reason for my leaving. It's not my house. And so it, it, it helps me to understand all the creation that way, that I don't know where the Lord is going to tell me to go tomorrow. And if I latch on to something and say that, Lord, I'm embracing this and I'm not going to give it to you, you can't have it. Um, I don't think I'm hearing from you right because what you're asking me to do just doesn't sound like something that I would have volunteered for. It doesn't sound like something that appeals to me. I don't feel like it. Uh, please, um, I'm, going to come, I'm, going to come back to and, I'm going to come back to you and pray until you tell me that I'm hearing you wrong. Just make it quick because I'm very anxious about all of these things. Everything that we are looking at is temporary because we are headed towards, and here's the, here's the other um, theological word, and you will see this word if you read different treatments of the Bible. The word is eschatology. Has that ever come up before? Eschatology is the study of the end times. Eschatology is the... Um, is the noun, is one of the noun forms. There's another noun, I guess the cognate form, is the eschaton. We are working toward, that's a Greek word, we are working towards the end times when the world is, is rolled up like a scroll. And um, at this point is when we get a lot of churches beating each other bloody about whether they're a post-millennialist or an amillennialist or whatever other millennialist they are. I guess I've decided that everything that I do would anything change based on where I think the millennium falls? Would my treatment of you be based upon that? Would my understanding of scripture, would the way I love people, would my, would my uh, um, understanding of God, my worship of God, would any of that change if I decided, you know, this um, post-millennialism is for the birds. I think I'm going to be a pre-millennialist from now on. Would any of you know that I had changed my mind about that if I'm living the Christian life? No. Um, I know some people who think this is terribly important. And I understand that they, that's ter- I, I get it. Um, I just don't, I don't know. But I know that in the, as a, in the end, God wins. <laughs> right? <laughs> God, God wins. I don't know the sequence, but God wins. I can't remember the sequence of some stuff in my past. And I'm trying to work now on the sequence of things that are coming up. But my behavior should be the same, with the understanding that the God is involved in everything. Everything. There is a comfort in understanding this. And so the mystery that our friend Paul is talking about here is the um, understanding that we are involved in a creation under the lordship, the involvement, um, the um, 
intervention, if you will, of Jesus. God intervenes. God communicates. God corrects. Um, God instructs. God comforts through his Holy Spirit. He deals with us day by day, minute by minute, to the degree that we let him. Now, obviously, he's still Lord. I, 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 this is a place where you can get sidetracked, and I can feel myself heading there, and I want to stop myself. Um, well, as you start weighing, you know, which are, which are the things that are we supposed to do and which are the things that God is supposed to do, um, how do those fit together? That's a, that's a sermon for another time. That's actually part of the mystery. But the obedient church understands that, it, that a man does not direct his own steps. Remember that one? That's one of my favorites. It is God who directs his steps. Churches are like this. The church that I was at in Ellicott City, you want to know what was most important to them? Their T-bills. They had invested a certain amount of money in T-bills, and any time we didn't make our budget, they had to tap into it. And that caused more angst than almost anything else you could think of at that church, other than the fact that um, some new person might want to come in and uh, take over a committee. That was another thing they didn't like. They were talking about selling things. They were talking of, you know, just how can we save money? How can we do all these things so that our account stays at $80,000 or whatever it was? That was 20 years ago. How are our investments doing? It's crazy stuff. And one of the things about it is, if we are stewards of what the Lord has given us, the mystery of God is that can we trust him to guide us and sustain us and to provide for us everything we need? He says he, says he will. I'm running out of gas, everybody. Anything liquid. Almost anything. <laughs> <laughs> Ah, <laughs> uh, thing. This used to happen to me at uh, at an Ellicott City at the f- the first hymn every Sunday morning, and I would just back away from the microphone and just uh, uh, <laughs> they just lip sync. I look like Bono up there. Okay. We are now in a period, we are in the last days. We are in that period after Jesus Christ came and, and um, paid for our sins, between that time and the time that um, he comes and takes us all home. That sense of anticipation, thank you, honey, that sense of anticipation, that sense of hope is very important in the scripture. And Paul talks this about a lot, the nature of the hope we have in Christ Uh, based on who we are, knowing that Jesus has our backs, that he's watching us, that um, whatever he expects for us, we are glad to do it. Um, There is work to do. There um, uh, There are things that we're being assigned to do. There are things that are being expected of us, but it's okay because the Holy Spirit is with us. The next, we're going into chapter two. Recall the words in the previous verse. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. Energy is tied to power. I want you to know how hard I'm contending for you 
and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not met me personally. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love, so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding, in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments from the false shepherds. For though I'm absent from you in body, I'm present with you in spirit and delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. This actually points us towards next week. Uh, The message next week goes deeper into chapter 2 and discusses the, um, the kinds of false teachings that the church has to deal with how to identify them and to withstand them. And I'm going to have to stop here. There's not, much, there's not much more anyway. Thank you all for loving me so much that you're allowing me to <clears throat> sort of... Um, <coughs> <coughs> yeah, the only way I know to say that is to keep talking. 